3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone, welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is 7am and today is uh, Tuesday the 13th of February. Uh, my name is Fung and joined uh, joining me in the studio this morning, we've got Frances, Carnegie and Ivka. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. 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 How's everyone travelling at the moment? Hot. <laughs> Hot, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it's very warm at the moment, so yeah, hopefully everyone can stay cool and yeah, shelter from the heat because it's quite intense it's been quite intense these past few days mm, and today's meant to be a windy hot day as well so that extra layer which is not nice yeah for sure um yeah and aside from the weather how's everyone been going everyone good okay. i um i went to a really great benefit gig on the weekend for isims for gaza and for olive kids um we had sophie uh, the lead singer of the band rub on the show not long ago and this was a benefit show that her band and a few other punk bands put up and it's just really great it was all ages so lots of kids there with their little headphones um (laughs) which was really sweet and it's just i just feel like punk is such a great medium to express the rage that i personally am feeling about what's going on um so it was also a little bit cathartic to be there and meet lots of other people feeling the same rage and sadness. Um, so that was a nice way to spend Sunday. Yeah, awesome. Um, well, we'll be speaking a lot more about what's happening, uh, well, what other Free Palestine actions are happening this week. So stay tuned. Um, but we're going to go do a quick message and then we'll be back with the news headlines right after this. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Before we get into the news headlines this morning, uh, let's give you a rundown on what's happening on today's show. So we're starting by uh, replaying for you a conversation that Jan Bartlett had with Dr. Helen McHugh um, on Tuesday Home Time. Uh, Dr. Helen McHugh is an honorary fellow at the National Centre of Excellence for Islamic Studies at Melbourne University and uh, is also the winner of the 2023-2024 Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize. Uh, So we'll be hearing that conversation first. 
Then at 7.30, we'll be speaking to Sarah Barini and Shirley Winton, two representatives from Hobson's Bay for Palestine. And uh, they'll be speaking about the work that they've been doing within their local community, advocating for a free Palestine, as well as the um, community rally that's taking place this evening. Then at 7.45, we'll be speaking with two residents of the West, Elena and Angela. Uh, Elena is from Bike West and Angela is from Better Streets for the West, which are both community groups advocating for better bike lanes and footpaths and safety in um, the Western suburbs. So they'll be on the show to talk to us about an upcoming action um, that they're taking with Critical Mass. And uh, at around 8 o'clock... Well, just after eight, we'll be listening to a conversation that Giselle Hanna had with Elena Lopez of the Communications Workers of America, um, speaking about cross-border worker solidarity in the face of job offshoring. And to finish the show off at 8.15, we will be speaking with Kate and Maria, who are uh, hosts of the podcast Being Biracial. Uh, they're on the show today to talk about their new project showing currently at the Immigration Museum called Threads. So that's what's coming up on today's show and we're going to go straight into headlines now. So Carnegie. So these are our headlines for Tuesday the 13th of February. Israel is determined to advance with its unspecified plans to invade the city of Rafah in southern Gaza, where millions of displaced Palestinians are currently sheltering. The statement comes from the Israeli um, government, despite international alarm over the potential for carnage, an estimated 1.4 million Palestinians are crammed into Rafah at the moment due to the assaults on the rest of Gaza and hemmed in by the border with Egypt after being ordered by the Israel military to evacuate their homes elsewhere on the Gaza Strip. Egypt has fiercely opposed the plan which threatens to displace hundreds of thousands of Palestinians into its Sinai Peninsula. The European Union's foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell in a post on X late on Saturday backed warnings by the bloc's member states that an invasion of Rafah would lead to an unspeakable humanitarian catastrophe and grave tensions with Egypt. So, um, yeah, just to follow on from that, every day there are actions being organised advocating for a free Palestine. So here's what's happening today, Tuesday the 13th of February. At 1pm, there's a weekly Students for Palestine meeting that's happening on Sydney Road in Brunswick. At 6pm, there's a Mooney Valley rally for Palestine. So that's happening at the Mooney Valley Civic Centre. Also at 6pm, there's a Hobson's Bay rally for Palestine. And that's happening at the Hobson's Bay Civic Centre. And uh, we'll be speaking with people from that community group uh, just in a moment. And then early tomorrow morning at 6.30am, Uh, There's a Gaza ceasefire pilgrimage happening at Epping Railway Station. If you'd like to um, keep up to date with what's happening, you can follow Free Palestine Melbourne or APAN or Friends of the Earth um, has a page on their website that, um, yeah, continually um, updates what Free Palestine Melbourne um, actions are coming up. In other news, unions are welcoming additional protection for migrant workers. The ACTU has welcomed the passage of the Migration Amendment Bill 
from 2023, just last week. This, legis this legislation uh, implements key recommendations of the Migrant Workers Task Force after years of inaction by the coalition government. Australia's migration system has been used by unscrupulous employers who have created a business model of exploiting migrant workers. This new bill will make it a criminal offence for employers to coerce or unduly influence migrant workers to work in breach of their visa conditions or use a worker's migration status to exploit them, which shifts the focus onto employers who are using the power that they have over vulnerable workers to maximise their profits. The bill also gives the minister powers to ban exploitative employers from hiring workers on temporary visas for at least five years. This should be seen as a serious deterrent to employers thinking of taking advantage of vulnerable workers. Uh, also in immigration news, uh, in Australia yesterday, the government released a report detailing the criminal history of detainees released from immigration detention last year. Uh, for background, a decision by the High Court in November last year ruled indefinite immigration detention unlawful and led to the release of 149 people from immigration detention. Uh, yesterday on 12th of Feb, the government released a breakdown showing the specifics of offences that uh, these uh, pre former detainees had committed, including violent and sexual offences. Reporting on the issue from the ABC, Guardian and News.com.au, all focuses on the sensational nature of this news and fails to report that these people have served their sentence. None were confined to immigration detention due to criminal charges um, or because they did not have a visa. Uh, as an example, the headline at news.com.au reads, Questions Rage Over Released Crims. Uh, such reporting fails to grant non-citizens the same human rights as Australian citizens. And as reported by Sanmati Verma, Human Rights Law Centre uh, lawyer, in November last year, we have been led to believe and come to accept that immigration detention is an extension of prison, that migrants and refugees are inherently a risk to our safety, and tacitly that they should be locked up forever. Uh, in other news, in Pakistan, protests have broken out across the country following the national elections on Thursday last week and substantial allegations of vote rigging. This comes as the Election Commission revealed that the PTI, the Pakistan Tariqa and Surf Party, former Prime Minister Imran Khan's party, won the most seats despite the military preventing them from campaigning and forcing their members to run as independents. On Sunday, uh, Khan's PTI party organised protests outside election commission offices in areas across the country where alleged vote rigging took place. And we've seen police violence in response to that. Uh, the Guardian is reporting that in Lahore, hundreds of riot police gathered to break up the PTI protests and in some cases charged at groups who were peacefully protesting and detained them. In Rawalpindi City, clashes were reported and police fired tear gas to disperse PTI supporters. Uh, several people were also detained by police in Karachi in the country's south when they refused to clear the area. Uh, and there's been other incidences across the country. Uh, next steps are still uncertain since uh, former PM Nawaz Sharif is uh, claiming victory and working towards a coalition. And 
Back to local news now. Yesterday marked the first day of Ochre Ribbon Week, which is an Aboriginal-led self-determined campaign to raise awareness of the impacts of violence against Aboriginal women and children, as well as amplifying amplifying sorry the voices and experiences of Aboriginal women. Um, Aboriginal women are 33 times more likely to be hospitalised because of family violence and 11 times more likely um, to die from violent assault. Um, and yeah, this is a national crisis. So over the next week, um, Jira Victoria are asking um, people to stand um, alongside them and help them to call on the government to invest in um, a long-standing vision of regional expansion of their services, as well as establishing an Aboriginal Women's Centre, um, demanding as well that Aboriginal mums have access to culturally safe legal and non-legal support so they can escape violence safely with their children. You can uh, follow Jira on um, Instagram by going to Jira Vic, that's D-J-I-R-R-A-V-I-C, um, and you can also go to their link tree, um, which has um, different resources and websites that you can follow, um, and that's link tree uh, forward slash Jira Vic. Finally, uh, this week at 3CR, where um, it's subsi- subscriber week, and we're asking listeners to subscribe to the station. Um, I think, you know, recently we've been talking on this show about how important it is to have community radio, especially in the face of mainstream media that will often um, silence what's happening within uh, marginalised communities. We're seeing this with Palestine right now. And so, yeah, 3CR is, is, you know, one of those spaces where you hear a lot of stories that are just not told anywhere else. And um, prioritising the voice and lived experiences of those who are most affected. So if you'd like to subscribe, you can do so in different ways. You can subscribe online by going to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You can come to the station, which is located at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. Um, You can post your details and money by post. You can call us on 03-9419-8377. And um, just to let you know that Um, If you become a 3CR subscriber, you are a member of the station and therefore you have a say in what happens. Uh, You help to keep independent and commercial-free radio alive in NAM and also you get a yearly 3CR magazine called The Cram Guide, which is really excellent reading. Um, And by supporting the station, uh, you help to give a voice to those who are traditionally denied a place in mainstream media Um, fund a radio station that has a policy of non-racist, non-sexist broadcasting um, to get local uh, artists out there. So on 3CR, we play at least 55% Australian music each week and also just to help build skills and empower marginalised groups um, with training courses and special projects. So, yeah, if you're listening and you enjoy our show and you enjoy or you think that 3CR broadcasting is really important, um, please subscribe. Okay, so that's all for the news headlines this week. We'll be back with our first uh, segment right after this message. 
Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. To start the show off this morning, we're going to play... Jan Bartlett speaking with Dr. Helen McHugh about her work with Australian People for Health, Education and Development Abroad, which is also known as Union Aid Abroad. And they'll also chat about her continued advocacy for refugee and women's rights. This chat was first aired on Tuesday Home Time. And Dr. Helen McHugh is an honorary fellow at the National Centre of Excellence for Islamic Studies at Melbourne University. The winner of the 2023-24 Jerusalem Al-Quds Peace Prize is Dr. Helen McHugh, AM. The award recognises 41 years of passionate advocacy and support for Palestine through her work with Union Aid Abroad, AFIDA and the Union Movement. But Helen, before that, where did you train and work? that led you to work for the World Health Organisation? And what did you hope to do? I was a nurse, and in those days, you know, we did our nurse training in hospitals. So I was a nurse in Canberra Hospital, which in those days was the Royal Canberra Hospital. After that, I married and went overseas, and um, we lived in London for nearly six years, my husband and I. And then we travelled overland from London to Australia, as you could in those days. It took us a year, and it was a life-changing experience for me. When I came back, I did more study, a, a diploma in nurse education, and then a degree in nurse education. And then I did my master's in health personnel education. I moved from Adelaide. And then I did my master's in Sydney at uh, UNSW. Then after that, I got a job with the the Hospital Standards Association. Had uh, just I think that's the right name. Had just uh, established itself, and I became their project and educational officer, training senior Australian health workers about the hospital standards that were about to be implemented and are now widely used across Australia. Through my work there that I met Fred Katz from the WHO and um, he offered me a job in Mauritius um, to set up a nurse registration. Uh, Well, initially he offered me a job in Geneva doing task analysis and I wrote a six-page letter back saying I didn't agree with that. I didn't think it captured what... Uh, health workers were doing. 
So I thought, oh, that was it. That's the end of my. I'd always wanted to work for WHO, and I thought that's the end. Of, that's the end of my WHO chances. Anyway, he came back and he offered me a consultancy with WHO to do uh, nurse care evaluation, and I went to Pakistan, Jordan, and Bahrain, and as a first consultant with uh, WHO, and then they offered me a further consultant and. I was meant to go to Kuwait and then Israel invaded and I found myself back in Alexandria getting ready to go to the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon. You went to Lebanon. What did you find? I found uh, thousands of Palestinian and Lebanese uh, living up and down the Bekaa Valley. Uh, so I was seconded from WHO to UNRWA, UNRWA being the relief agency for Palestinians. And they were living in schools you know, they do now, and bombed out mosques and whatever facilities they could find. It was fortunate that it was summer, so, you know, it was dry and fairly hot. But my job was to uh, coordinate maternal and child health care services across the Becca Valley for UNRWA. When did you meet Olfat? I stayed in, uh, the, in, in the Becca Valley for um, quite a few months. And then, by then, we had a lot of doctors and nurses, honour people, up from the south that fled the war in the south of Lebanon, where Israel, at that time, fully occupied. I felt that they they could do the job better, really, than I could. And so I asked to be relocated to the south of Lebanon. Anyway, I said, well, you have to go back to Alexandria. Then I went back to Alexandria and... Um, there's a bit of a story, but anyway, long and short, it was the Sabri Shatila massacre occurred and I resigned from the WHO and from UNRWA and I went back to Beirut and I went back to Damascus actually first and then um, with the help of the Norwegian People's Relief, I uh, went back to Beirut and was it was suggested that I should meet Olfat and that's when I met her in um early October 1982. It wasn't actually the Israelis who massacred in those camps, was it? Who were the groups responsible? Uh, they were Christian militia, but they were completely overseen by Israelis. The Israelis were on a hill overlooking um, the Sabashatila camp. They could see everything. They put up flares during the night to facilitate the massacre. They dug a big hole to bury all the people that that uh, the Christian Lebanese forces had slaughtered and um, they threw a large number of people into that hole and, and the Lebanese forces went into the hospital and separated the foreigners from the Palestinians. They took the Palestinians down a laneway and killed them, nurses and doctors. And then they told the foreigners to go and they went at, at the outside of the hospital. No, not the... Well, the hospital, but then at the end of the camp um, to a road where Israel, could, Israel forces could see them. And then, anyway, the Lebanese told them to take off their white coats and identification. And um, at that moment, of course, the Israelis came screaming down the hill and no doubt saved the foreigners, but 
took no action to save the Palestinians, of which it's estimated around 3,000 were slaughtered. Helen, how much of this did you witness or how much, how much were you told? Well, I was told all about it because um, Olfat uh, was working in Acker Hospital, which was just across the road from Sabrishatila camp, and the Lebanese forces went into that hospital as well and killed nurses and doctors. She and a few others were very fortunate because they were on the ground floor. They were able to escape through the winter window and over a fence. But other nurses were taken and raped and then killed. And she was just very lucky that she was able to move quickly. Also, when I went back in October, I nursed a number of people. One old man who'd had his throat slit and needed a tracheotomy to breathe. Young people who'd um, been, you know, injured. Another man who'd lost his entire family. And another woman who'd been buried underneath all of her family and who was really having a severe psychiatric breakdown as a result of it. So I had a chance to speak to many people who were witness to it. What did you learn about why these people were in these camps? Well, I, when I was in the Bekaa Valley, and even prior to that, through Egyptian friends, you know, when I was living in Alexandria, I started to learn much more about the Palestinians when I was uh, in the Bekaa Valley. And I heard their story of the seizure of Palestinian land in 1948 and their escape. But I think it was when I was there in 1982 and I was with Olfat and I would go to her, her mother's place and her grandmother's place and I would speak with them and they would tell me the story of, of their exile and of the situation. And I could see for myself the situation in the camp because I actually, although I had a bed in the hospital, I spent quite a lot of time in Bosch or Barajni camp with Olfat and her mum family. Mm. And those camps that survived, it was very basic, wasn't it? And it still is. Yeah, it's very basic. It's very basic. You know, small rooms, very crowded, very poor. You know, they've got sanitation facilities, but they're pretty poor. Um, The buildings themselves are close together. There's not much light. There's some attempt by UNRWA for rubbish collection, but in general, it's not very... You know, know, they do what they can. But... um, Yes, the situation is they're very impoverished, very impoverished. Yeah, because in Lebanon, unlike in Jordan and in Syria, Palestinians in Lebanon are not allowed to have about 30 different occupations in which they can work. So the jobs that they have are, you know, very low-paid jobs. And so they're really living on the edge uh, in poverty and they rely very greatly on UNRWA for preventative health care, but also sort of chronic illness health care like diabetes and um, blood pressure, etc., hypertension. But also they rely on UNRWA for their education. So it's particularly distressing to hear that our government, at the bequest of the Israelis who are military, who are known to be liars, 
have withdrawn aid uh, to UNRWA temporarily, there may well have been some members of UNRWA involved in activities, but the UN should be let to do the investigation and Australia should be standing with countries such as Norway and Ireland and Spain who've got a bit of spine and a bit of moral courage and don't just jump when Israel says jump and you know listen to what the IDF has to say. You know what's happening at the moment is uh, truly uh, shocking and disappointing. Oh, more than disappointing. Outrageous, actually. How long did you stay there and where did you go next? I stayed in Beirut for about, I left in April, March, April. Yeah, I stayed there for about five months, I suppose, in all. And um, that doesn't include the, the time that I spent in the Becca Valley. So in total, it was about six months with Palestinians. But Olfat and I had been talking about, you know, what to do to stay there because I could have stayed there because I was I was living off my WHO salary. Anyway, we, we talked about it and decided, and I decided it was better, uh, you know, with her guidance, it was better to go home and see if I could set up an organisation that would provide support to the Palestinians. Yeah, Bob Hawke was elected um, Prime Minister in February of um, 83 and, and I decided, well, now I should go home and see what I could do to set up an organisation that would help Palestinians. And um, that's what I did. How difficult was that to do? Well, I did a lot of talking around to different organisations and went to the ACTU international officer and um, at the time and he said he didn't think ACTU would be interested. And I talked to lots of people, but I, I did also go up to the Department of Foreign Affairs and put a suggestion to them about trade union, and they were very, very positive about it. They thought that was a pretty good idea. So I went to Cliff Dolan eventually. I was advised uh, um, to go and talk to Cliff Dolan, and um, Cliff uh, came from... Uh, he, he lived in poverty when he was a child, and um, he'd also gone to a Catholic school, so he had a strong sense of social justice as a Catholic. And so when I went to him and put the idea and said that DFAT were interested as well, foreign, you know, the aid organisation was interested, the government, we had a conversation for about 20 minutes, not long. So I'd already written a proposal to him, so he went to the next ACT executive and they agreed, yes we could provide that support to the Palestinians, which was, you know, what our first proposal was. But essentially the proposal was how Australian workers and through the trade union movement could help workers, in particular refugees, gain skills that would help them earn an income and be self-sufficient. That was Jan Bartlett speaking with Dr Helen McHugh about her work with Australian People for Health, Education and Department Abroad and her advocacy for refugee and women's rights. That excerpt is part of a longer interview, which if you'd like to hear the rest of it, you can go to 3cr.org.au. 
You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's now 7.30am and we are now joined by uh, Sarah Barini and Shirley Winton who are two representatives of Hobson's Bay for Palestine. So across Victoria, we're seeing local community groups mobilising to advocate for a free Palestine. Residents of Hobson's Bay are calling for an end to the genocide, occupation and crimes against humanity committed against the Palestinian people. As I said earlier, uh, Sarah Barini and Shirley Winton are from Hobson's Bay for Palestine. Um, Sarah is an executive board member of the Islamic Council of Victoria and has lived in Hobson's Bay her entire life. Shirley has lived in Williamstown and Newport for over 40 years and for many years she worked in the Western Suburbs Community Legal Centre as well as working as a union organiser with the Communications Workers Union and the NTEU. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Sarah and Shirley. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Sarah, could we start by um, just talking a bit more about Hobson's Bay for Palestine? Can you tell us more about this group and how it came about? Yeah, so, look, we're a group of local residents who are concerned about what's happening in Palestine at the moment. We're witnessing a genocide unfold um, before our eyes, and the Australian government has effectively been complicit in that genocide. So we've been quite concerned um, to watch the atrocities that are unfolding on the ground. Um, Basically, the group formed um, by looking at other councils um, and seeing the motions and the efforts that have been taking place in them, and kind of just thinking about the fact that our council really should be doing the same. Um, we expected that they had would follow the lead of other councils, um, and we're quite disappointed when it seemed that they needed a push from residents to do the right thing. Um, so effectively, um, a group of local residents, and it all started with Yanama, just like reaching out to a couple of people, um, and pulling people together with, that were like-minded and really wanted to see an end to the atrocities um, being committed, um, just kind of like forming the group and, and pushing through. We started with a petition with, I think, was like five members, and we've kind of um, grown, and now we've been going outside of council and trying um, to get them and push them to do the right thing and stand for justice. Yeah, it's been really disappointing to see that um, local councils have been so reluctant to advocate for Palestinians and for Palestine. Um, But at the same time, it has been heartening to see um, community groups um, and people, residents living in um, local councils really come together and um, form bonds and, and solidarity um, in in support of Palestine. Um, and, you know, the, the rallies that you were referencing, um, we've seen so many photos from Hobson's Bay rally outside Tim Watts' office um, with so mm. many people gathering. Um, so, yeah, that's that's been great to see as well that there there is so much support in, in that area. Um Sarah, I was wondering if you could just detail a bit more the demands of the group in relation to the local council. Yeah, so look, we totally recognise that it's not the role of government to make foreign policy. Um, And that's kind of something that the council has um, reiterated to us as well on a number of occasions. But effectively what we're asking is not that they make foreign policy decisions, but call on the government to do the right thing here. Um, so similar to other councils, we're calling for a permanent and immediate ceasefire 
um, condemnation of the violence um, that is being committed against the Palestinian people, while also mourning the loss of the victims of genocide. Um, Sorry, recognizing the impact that the atrocities are having on residents in Hobson's Bay. Um, that's really important because taking a mental toll um, on all of us is it's difficult um, to watch the atrocities that are unfolding on the ground. And honestly, I can only imagine how difficult... I can't really even imagine how difficult it is to be living um, through that on the ground in Palestine. Um also taking into account the context of what we are seeing right now, this did not start on the 7th of October, and it's important that local council is able to um, recognise that and push the government to do the same as well. Um, and just basic things like, you know, recognising that violence um, can come to an end if Israel withdraws from occupied territories. Um, asking for the flag to be raised, the Palestinian flag, and I think of the most um, kind of important ones right now is calling on um, the government to end economic, military and political ties with Israel as well because that will really put pressure on the Israeli government, I think. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for that, Sarah. Shirley, I was wondering if you could talk us through uh, the concerns of the group. We, on 3 ZR, we've talked a lot about the relationship between U.S. and Israel, Australia and Israel. Um, I was wondering if you could talk uh, talk about, you know, how does this relationship between um, these two powers affect local communities? Yeah, so, um, so starting with um, the at the local level, the by council, um, the motion that the council has put is um, um, refuses to mention Gaza. Um, it, 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 it doesn't mention anything about the genocide in, in Gaza. Um, and this has been the genocide has been condemned by the world. Um, and the, the motion, we think, as Sarah was saying, that the motion should be condemning the slaughter in Gaza um, and calling for a ceasefire and resumption of humanitarian aid to UNRWA. Now, we feel that um, we can only, the local community can only conclude that helps by council and councillors have succumbed to pressure from a small but powerful lobby group. And I just um, mentioned that I think it's a Zionist group. Well, we know that it is the Zionist lobby, which is backed by the US and the meek Australian government. And they do not represent the wishes um, of the local community. So um, there is a link there, and we know that um, the local councils have met with the Zionist lobby. I've seen definitely on one occasion, which is maybe on two occasions. So there is, but there's also the pressure from the Australian government. So we do know that the, the government's position and the ALP's position on Palestine is, is, um, is basically complicit support for the genocide. Um, so... That obviously um, translates back into the local the local council, and um, this is where the the problem is, is that the local councils do not, or in this case, the Hopkins Bay Council, does not represent in this case the wishes and the needs of the local community. It's a multicultural community. Um, it does not take account of the needs of our community and what the wishes are. The fact is that the 
majority of the world has condemned um, the, the genocide. Uh, it's universally condemned. Um, and yet we have a council that even refuses in its motion to mention the existence of Palestinian people, which is really all part of the um, part of the part of the cleansing of Palestine. Of Palestine. Um, to further to the relationship between um, you know between Australia and the and I guess Israel, um, which again is really you know it's all connected with local government. I mean, it's a known fact that Israel and U.S. embassies cultivate Australian politicians. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fact and it's been recognised and it's been mainstream media. And they have enormous influence um, to the point where influential members of the two major political parties, parliamentary parties, are regular, regularly sponsored and funded um, to, to Israel. So... Um, the, the issue here is that there's a real um, there's a real contradiction between the policies of the of the Australian government, which is basically following the US, because it echoes every US um, you know, every US policy um, in the United Nations. As we know that we've just had that experience of it, so we have the contradiction. And uh, on the other hand, you have the community the um, the multicultural communities, all our communities, the majority of Australian people are calling for a ceasefire, are calling for the resumption of aid to UNRWA. And so the contradiction is also um, expresses itself in local government. And the, the most important thing about it, and the most, uh, I, I think, is, is just incredibly um, empowering, is the growing way of support for the Palestinian people. And um, it is universal, it is right around the world, and it is in Australia, and it's bound to continue to grow, irrespective of... And, and, leave, and leave the political parties behind on this. Yeah. And, we, you know, this morning we've been talking about the latest... Um, attacks on Rafa and the um, mm-hmm. horrifying images that are coming from there and more and more, like you said, Shirley, more and more people um, in Australia are um, loudly calling for a ceasefire and um, supporting uh, the rights of, of Palestinian people. And I think it's also important to note what you just said, that any sort of policies that come from the federal government eventually make their way down to local council. And I guess that's why it's so important that um, the work that you're doing as community groups, um, yeah, it, it can have a, it can make a real difference. Um, on that note, there's a rally being held in Hobson's Bay tonight. Uh, Shirley, can you tell us a bit about this event? Um, yeah, I, I guess, but there are, Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, Sarah, if you but wanted think, to tell yeah, us. <laughs> no, no, I think, Sarah, but could I just, just say very, very quickly that this uh, movement at the local level in Hobson's Bay is being driven by the local community, by people like Sarah, the local Muslim community, the local multicultural community, by the ordinary people. Um, so, you know, this is to, you know, to, to refute any kind of, um, you know, myths that are being alive on that anyone would want to promote that this is all external, externally being driven. This is this is really grassroots movement. 
There's no question about it. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that, Shirley. Um, so, Sarah, to end our interview today, could you tell us, um, tell our listeners about tonight's rally and if, if um, there are people who are interested in supporting, um, where, sh- where and when should they go? Yep. So um, tonight, um, like Shirley was saying, a diverse group of us um, will be heading down um, to Hobson's Bay City Council um, Civic Centre. And at 6 o'clock, um, we'll have a rally. Basically, the rally will be focused on calling the government, uh, sorry, calling the local council to pass a strong motion in support of Palestine. As Shirley was saying, the motion that they put forward is ambiguous and does not address any of the points of the petition, um, nor does it really address anything that's going on in Palestine at the moment. So we really need to kind of stand our ground and push um, council to do the right thing here, because unfortunately I'm really concerned that this is if this motion passes um, and the council kind of let to get away with um, this week an ambiguous motion, that it is going to kind of set a precedent for other councils to kind of follow suit by effectively um, getting away with doing nothing. Um, mm. So we really need to <laughs> all be there in full force today um, and call on the council to do the right thing. Thank you so much for that. And thank you to Sarah and Shirley for coming on our show today to, to tell us more about um, what advocate what advocating um, for a free Palestine looks like in, in Hobson's Bay, in your local council, but also just on a community level. And thank you for the work that you continue to do. Um, all the best with the rally tonight. And I'm sure we'll speak to you um, both soon to see um, how, how the pressure um, that you're putting on uh, the local council is going. So for now, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Thank you, thank you for having me. If you've just joined us, we've been speaking to Sarah and Shirley from Hobson's Bay for Palestine. Um, as Sarah said, the community rally is taking place tonight at 6pm at the Hobson's Bay Civic Centre. Uh, speakers include Sarah Barini, Mia Boonen, Reem Yunus, Nat Turnbridge, Kevin Bracken, Shirley Winton and Ehab Alazari. You can keep up to date with the group by following them on Instagram at Hobson's Bay for Palestine and the four is a number four. We're going to be back with our next interview um, after this message. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. 
Critical Mass Melbourne, Bike West and Better Streets for the West are advocating for safer speeds, footpaths and pedestrian crossings in Footscray. Angela Ashley Chu is a parent and climate advocate based in the Inner West and member for Better Streets for the West, a local chapter of Better Streets Australia. Elena Pereira is an Inner West resident and parent as well and an activist with Bike West. Angela and Elena are joining us this morning to talk about their advocacy and upcoming action. Welcome to 3CR. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you both on the show. Um, I was hoping we could start um, just by giving our listeners a little bit more background on both Bike West and um, uh, Better Streets for the West. So, Elena, if you wanted to just give us a little bit of background on Bike West to start. Yeah, sure. We started around 2016 and we've been rallying a lot of activity, particularly around Maribyrnong and the Inner West area, but we cover all of the Western metropolitan region in terms of helping people uh, advocate for improved cycling infrastructure. That's great. And uh, uh, Angela, if you just wanted to tell us a little bit about the Better Streets for the West faction of uh, Better Streets Australia. Sure. Um, Well, Better Streets Australia has been going for about a year in Australia. It started out in New South Wales, um, really wanting to kind of shift the conversation about how we share our streets. Um, So rather than going for this conversation that can be quite divisive sometimes um, around wanting to get better infrastructure um, for cyclists and for pedestrians, we're trying to broaden the frame and talk about how we share our public spaces better. How can we create safer, healthier, more accessible people-friendly, climate-friendly streets that everyone can feel safe and enjoy. Um, and we've started up a local chapter of that in the West, which is Better Streets for the West. That's great. Um, you know, as a resident of the West myself, I'm pretty familiar with uh, how unsafe the bike lanes and the footpaths can be, um, especially around the Joseph Road precinct that sort of starts to lead into the city. Um, I was hoping we could talk a bit about your own experiences uh, with the bike paths and footpaths in the West. Um, Elena, let's start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I guess I would also just say that I just spent 25 minutes on a stationary bike in my living room this morning because I just don't feel safe anymore riding on the street, um, especially for exercise I suppose I used to do quite a bit of road riding and increasingly uh, despite incremental improvement in infrastructure the streets feel less and less safe and so the work that we do is around trying to encourage more people to be able to get out on their bike and if um and if people who previously were comfortable, are less comfortable, then, then that's a really serious issue. There's a fair bit around, um, you know, behaviour change that we that we need to work on, but there's also a lot that infrastructure can do to signal to every all road users that um, that bikes are, are welcome here in these spaces and that it's a legitimate form of transport and a legitimate form of exercise and of recreation and a great activity for families to do with kids. Um, But, yeah, at the moment, the infrastructure is just too few and far between and it doesn't allow people 
to use it as a regular and um, an an obvious choice for for commuting. Yeah, and it it is interesting why this is sort of such a contentious issue because, uh, you know, the way you've just put it, it's it's a completely legitimate normal tra- form of transport and recreation, and it's um, instead of just being viewed as such, it it is quite contentious in the community. Um, Angela, what are your reflections on that? Um, yeah, it's been really interesting. These past summer holidays, um, my family who do a lot of um, stuff in the climate kind of advocacy space decided we'd have a bit of a game with our kids where we see how many days in a row we can go without using our car. Uh, so we've been all out on my our bikes. My kids are 9 and 11, um, just riding around our local area, going to play dates, going to the pool and that type of thing because um, my kids are so young, they're needing to ride more on the footpath. But even riding on the footpath and, you know, sometimes we'll ride on the road so we can kind of keep a lookout, look out for cars and that type of thing. It can be a really hair-raising experience. So, yeah, it's it's really concerning. I want my kids to be able to grow up and be able to take themselves places on their bike. And we're trying to show them how to do that as safely as possible. But even like us riding up to the aquatic centre and going by the footpath and, you know, using the pedestrian crossings where they're available. Like, a lot of the times cyclists just aren't, I mean, not cyclists, motorists aren't looking out who else is using the road and um, what should be something that, as a family, we should be able to do uh, can be really scary, actually. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that stretch um, to the aquatic centre is pretty bad as well uh you know it gets pretty packed with cars on a busy day and you're right you do have to use the uh, pedestrian crossings um it's not ideal at all especially for kids um i think that there have been a few pretty horrific incidents as well in Footscray that have led to a lot of this activism amping up in recent times elena could you talk to that a little bit yeah we've had it last year was a was a terrible year in February. Angus Collins was killed on Footscray Road, and then in November, Francis Ramirez was um, was killed in Hopkins Street. Both of them were just 22, and that's really been a catalyst for a couple of critical mass rides, including the one on the 23rd next week, and. I mean, these these are still very young people. I <laughs> I asked my partner what age he thought he might let our child ride on on some of the roads around here, um, and and he said probably maybe when she's twenty six, and and then he revised it to probably never. Um, this is it's a, such a huge issue, and. We're constantly encouraging people and children to not be behind their phone screens, not be um, chauffeured around, uh, not just be uh, inside, to be outside more, to be in nature. Um, But the places that we've created are just completely hostile. And, um, And so we're putting children and communities in cages. We're just calling them cars and apartments. And it's completely inappropriate that we don't see action without the death of somebody from in our community. Uh, and I think that's why the 
you know, Joseph's Road community have really come out and said that this is, it's not, it's not acceptable and it's not appropriate. Absolutely. Um, I think there's also a little bit of an element of this being the Western suburbs. Uh, I think Angela, you and I have spoken on the show before uh, about Footscray Hospital and, you know, uh, reimagining the future for that, that site. We talked a little bit about what it means for it that site to be in the Western suburbs, and I think those things apply here as well. You know, do you think that um, a lot of this stuff is sort of ignored because it is the West, which is, you know, historically a sort of lower socioeconomic and migrant neighbourhood? Angela, you still there? Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was talking to Elena. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes, possibly. And also I was thinking, you know, it, it comes around, you know, some people might criticise us for wanting to ride on the road with our kids, um, saying it's not safe. But, you know, we don't have to just accept that that's what the way it is now is the way it always needs to be. Like, we can... It is possible to create... Uh, a spa- like, like shared spaces where everyone can feel safe and you know enjoy their community and have um, more spaces that everyone has access to. Um, I guess yeah. In the past, uh, the West can be more industrial, so maybe that type of of um, uh, planning hasn't been there as the West was created. But the demographic here has changed greatly. There are so many families. There are you know, primary schools are busting at the seams. Um, we need to make it a, a change to suit the community who is here now. Absolutely. Um, tell us about the event that's coming up next week and uh, why it's so important that the community get behind it. Elena, you want to take that? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we feel like it's, you know, the critical mass rides were, were big back in the 90s and so we're seeing a resurgence in that. Um, and there's lots of different reasons. I mean, as Angela was saying, part of it is historically was kind of economic and that is the same again. We've got people who are facing uh, terrible uh, issues with housing affordability. There's a cost of living crisis. There's, there's a lot of people who would like to go back to move, to moving around their community by bicycle from a sustainability perspective but also just from an economic perspective um, and it's also good for kind of civic health and sociability so that's what we hope the critical mass bike rides also engender that they're a pro-social activity we're not there to antagonize people we're certainly not there to um demonise people in cars. We understand completely that lots of people need to travel around by car and that's the only way that they can do what they need to do. But the more people we have riding, the the less congestion we have, the healthier the air is and the less noise pollution there is. So it's, it's geared up to be a really fun ride, family friendly and, and just to show that Riding around our city can be a really enjoyable thing to do and and hopefully it just helps highlight that more infrastructure is, is required because there are a lot of people who want to ride and there's just not enough space allocated to that. Absolutely, and I think that's a really good point that you've made, that it's not necessarily about 
bikes versus cars like that's not that's not the point of any of this I feel that's often where the conversation goes um, you know in community groups and things like that so it's really important to remember that it's um, just about providing that option that people need um, for you know the environment for economic reasons and for health reasons I think it's all really important so it starts at the state library at 5 30 p.m on the 23rd of February is that right yeah, that's right. Um, so for listeners who are interested in joining, you can join in at the State Library at 5.30 on the 23rd of February. And uh, what happens from there? We're still resolving the route, but um, we'll finish by coming up through Hopkins Street and past the Josephs Road precinct where more community members from that Josephs Road area will join the the ride, um, it will probably turn into a walk by then, and then we'll finish in, in the middle of Footscray. That sounds uh, really great, sounds like a great ride, and um, a great way to sort of connect with the community and other people who are passionate about this subject. That's all we have time for this morning, but thank you both so much for joining us um, and talking us through this really important issue, particularly in the western suburbs. Thanks for having us. No problem. Thank you so much for having us. So that was Angela from uh, Better Streets for the West and Elena from Bike West talking to us about their upcoming event organised with Critical Mass Melbourne advocating for safer streets for bikes and pedestrians in Footscray. You can join in at the State Library at 5.30pm on the 23rd of February and follow Bike West, Bike underscore West and Critical Mass Melb on Instagram for updates. We will link to both of those in our show notes later today. Uh, We're going to go to a track now. Uh, This song is called SOS by Little Sims.
That was Little Sims with uh, track SOS. That is from her recent release that dropped last week called Drop 7. Regular listeners of 3CR would know that we are continuing to give updates from and broadcast live from Camp Sovereignty. Today at 12pm there will be a reading group and at 9pm the Black People's Union will be presenting a series of short clips and docos called Black Power. As always, dinner is served at 7pm and there will be a smoking ceremony at 8.30pm. Please get down if you can and make sure you tune into Bundles Fire with Robbie Thorpe tomorrow from 11am to 2pm here on 3CR. We're now going to revisit a conversation between Giselle Hanna and Elena Lopez of the Communications Workers of America about cross-border worker solidarity in the face of job offshoring. Here's Giselle to further introduce that chat. Elena Lopez of the Communications Workers of America, speaking on the topic of cross-border worker solidarity in the face of job offshoring. Organised by the Trade Justice Education Fund about the realities of how corporate-driven trade agreements hurt working people everywhere and the importance of promoting fair trade policy alternatives that are rooted in cross-border workers' solidarity rather than hate. Hi everyone, my name is Elena Lopez and I'm a Senior Legislative Specialist here at the Communication Workers of America, CWA. Thank you everyone for tuning into this Trade Justice Power Hour, the best kind of power hour, to really learn about the importance of promoting fair trade policy alternatives. CWA understands the importance of promoting cross-border solidarity and ensuring that all of us across the globe are uniting as one against the corporate powers that attempt to divide us. For those who aren't familiar with our union, CWA represents workers in the telecommunication industries, manufacturing, tech, and so many more industries. And over the years, our union has seen call centers and factories, tech, video game development, and other jobs across all our industries shift operation overseas, downsize, or shut down their US operations altogether. And as a result, these local communities and entire regions are devastated when these jobs are offshored. In many cases, this happens because companies know that they can move jobs overseas and profit off the exploitation of workers in countries where the struggle to organize can be a matter of life and death. At CWA, we've heard stories from our friends and allies in the Philippines about the persecution, the attacks, the red tagging, which is being falsely accused of being a communist or a terrorist, or both in some cases, of labor activists and human rights defenders. Our union and the broader U.S. labor movement knows that we cannot fight for our own dignity and rights here without helping our brothers and sisters and siblings abroad that our fight for better wages and working conditions are directly related and connected to whether workers across the globe can organize. So CWA has had a long-standing relationship with workers in the Philippines, and we have worked together over a number of years on many issues. It really started in 2016 when our union was on strike at Verizon Communications. During that strike, Many of the customer service calls were routed from outsourced call centers um, here in the U.S. to the Philippines. And when the Filipino workers learned about our strike, the BPO Industry Employees Network, BN, 
reached out to CWA to let us know that call center workers there in the Philippines didn't want to be scabbed. And they wanted to know how they could help us in our fight with Verizon management. Striking CWA members then traveled to the Philippines to meet with workers there and stage solidarity actions at call centers that were handling the calls being routed from struck U.S. call centers. Given, you know, the persecution of labor activists in the country, it was truly a brave act of solidarity of those workers and really resulted in a growing partnership between our groups that continue to this day. And since that initial demonstration of international solidarity from our brothers and sisters in the Philippines, we have focused on deepening those bonds of global solidarity. In 2019, another group of CWA workers and local leaders traveled to the Philippines to meet with Filipino call center workers and union leaders. They heard firsthand accounts of how Filipino workers who participated in any union activity were subjected to physical threats and severe intimidation. They met with Ann Kruger, a union organizer, who showed our members around Manila and hosted a group of them in her home during their stay. Shortly after their visit, Anne's union office and a number of union offices across the country were raided by the police and she was arrested under false charges, all because of her union activity. They also met with Sarah, who shared how her and her partner were heavily involved in their organizing campaign and the fight for better wages at their company. Sadly, they weren't able to meet her partner because he was arrested and in jail at the time due to his union activity. To this day, our members still talk about how impactful and eye-opening the trip was and how they continue to share the stories from the Filipino call center workers of those stories to the members of their union. And we have been horrified to continue to learn about the harmful conditions that workers wanting to organize in the Philippines face. In fact, the Philippines has been named by the International Trade Union Confederation for four years in a row one of the world's worst countries for working people because trade unionists are killed, subjected to violence, arrested, and consistently red-tagged. Two years ago, we saw the armed forces of the Philippines and the Philippines National Police perform a series of raids that led to the murder of nine labor and human rights defenders and the arrest of six others. This reality became even more direct for CWA when Alex Dolorosa, an organizer funded through support from CWA, was brutally murdered last year for his union activities. Alex was a union organizer and paralegal with BN, as well as a social justice and LGBTQ plus rights activist. For us, Alex was a bigger part of our CWA family and his death has shaken us all. And the sad truth is, is that Alex's murder is not unique. His tragic and senseless murder follows years of him being surveilled and red tagged by the government of the Philippines. At one point he was harassed while entering the BN offices, and he felt so threatened that he had to flee. Alex lived with this persecution for standing up for his rights. And even in this death, the red tagging did not stop. Shortly after his murder, the red tagging of him and Bien took off on social media. It was truly horrifying. And his brutal murder happened in the context of these larger attacks on workers' rights fighting for change. These sorts of targeting, this sorts of targeting leaves a chilling effect on labor activists and their work 
which puts downward pressure on wages and working conditions in the U.S. too. Companies can and do exploit the low wages, substandard working conditions, and lack of respect for collective bargaining rights in other countries. U.S. companies often treat sourcing like a game of whack-a-mole, right? Jumping from country to country when strengthen and enforce labor laws drive workers' pay closer to a living wage. We have seen giant telecom companies prey on the Filipino workforce. These workers are getting paid less than $2 an hour and don't have basic rights to organize. A corporation sees those factors and knows that they can profit off the exploitation, and then they move our well-paid union jobs with benefits overseas. And that is why global labor solidarity is so important, because our struggles for better working conditions, better wages, and better unions are all connected. And you'll find that when you talk to union members and American workers, they get it. It resonates with them. They all understand that we have a goal, the common goal of fighting against corporate greed and putting power back into the hands of workers. And it's important that we as American workers get involved because we face many of the same struggles that workers abroad face. So when we talk about trade or negotiate trade deals, workers must have a seat at the table to determine their conditions of labor. Our trade policies should recognize the crucial role that workers play around the world to achieve social and economic equity. Doing so will lift labor standards domestically and internationally, and importantly, will do so by giving workers that crucial seat at the table. As the cliche saying goes, right, a rising tide lifts all boats. We cannot let multinational corporations and greed divide us. Workers across the globe are in this together. And when we stand together and fight through the struggle together, we all win. By centering our policies of workers globally, we can strengthen economic security at home by combating the race to the bottom, where companies move our good paying union jobs overseas so that they can exploit international workers who are threatened, intimidated, abused, and killed for organizing. Workers in the Philippines and across the globe must be free to exercise their right to form and join unions without fear of death or retaliation by their own government. CWA and the U.S. labor movement will continue to stand behind these workers and ensure that domestic and international worker rights are front and center when we talk about trade or make a trade deal. And we will make sure to let our members know and understand the benefits of what cross-border solidarity can do for them and workers globally. That was uh, an excerpt of a conversation between Giselle Hanna and Elena Lopez of the Communications Workers of America about cross-border worker solidarity. If you would like to hear the full conversation, you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash stick together. For our final conversation this morning, we have podcast host and artist Kate Robinson and Maria Birch Moringa on the show this morning to talk about not only what's next for their podcast being biracial, but also their new project called Threads, which is showing at the Immigration Museum. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, uh, Kate and Maria. Sure. Hi, Kanigi. Thanks for having us. 
Thank you for being back on the show. Um, we love having you on. I was hoping you could both introduce yourself a bit more. Kate, let's let's start with you. Do you want to just tell our listeners um, what you've been doing since the last time you were on the show? So I am an artist and a podcast host, and I used to be a family violence lawyer. Um, so I guess Maria and I have been doing a lot of dreaming about what's next for the podcast, which has been very exciting um, for me professionally because I just love collaborating with her and I think it's such a fun thing to do. But outside of that, I've also been working on some more exhibitions and, um, yeah, that's been really cool creatively as well. Um, yeah, that's what's been up with me. And what about you, Maria? Uh, hello, uh, my name is Maria Birchmordanger. Um, I obviously ho- co-host being biracial with Kate Robinson, um, but since we were last on, I've just been pottering around, um, obviously doing a lot of dreaming with Kate about what is going to happen next for being biracial as a podcast. Um, uh, we've done a couple of events since then. We've been um, either doing our things as part of the culture makers, but I've just been having fun. I went to New Zealand, has had a few people visiting me, um, and I've been chilling out. It's been really lovely. I love to hear it. Um, so for, I think for both of you throughout your projects, particularly, of course, being biracial, um, your, one of your main focuses has been to connect with parts of your culture. So I was hoping you could tell our listeners, you know, what draws you to this? What draws you to sort of exploring your connection to culture? And how has um, your relationship with your culture changed over time doing these projects? Kate, um, we start with you. Yeah, it's a really complicated one. Um, I think by nature of being mixed race, um, it's a ongoing journey um, for me to figure out what it means to be both of two places and also it feels like of neither place as well. Um, I've been spending all this time with my my aunt who's visiting from um, America by way of Iran and it's really interesting because in all the stories that she tells me, I see so much of myself and so much of my experience even though she grew up in, you know, the 1950s in Iran and I grew up in the 1990s in country Victoria and so to me this journey is that gradually unpicking that stuff and it, and it goes both ways I see that in my my cousins and my family members um, in Australia in the Australian context too um, and yeah and so I think this project has been so fulfilling I think because we've realised gradually as we've gone through it that um, even though I'm Iranian Australian and even though the people that we talk to are from all different mixes there's so much solidarity and so much shared experience in that and that it, it's as much about creating a podcast as it is about community building and that feels really important to me yeah that's really great um maria has it been similar for you to sort of examine what it's like to be maori especially living here in uh, australia yeah, big time. And I mean, we created this because we couldn't find anything about being mixed race and it has really like bloomed into something neither of us thought it would be. And to be able to um, like explore my Māori women and my and myself, um, you know, as you mentioned in Melbourne, which is not where I'm from. I am a visitor here, even though I definitely live here. Um, it has been really, really interesting to connect with my Māori self even more um, as somebody who isn't living in Aotearoa um, and recently I went back 
for one of my friend's weddings and um, we both met here in Australia and she's Māori as well. Um, and to see her at home um, in a place that I had never been in New Zealand um, and to be welcomed by her family and, you know, to see her in her Māori culture, like, standing really, really strong was so, so beautiful. And when I came to that space, I was kind of worried that I wouldn't be enough. Um, you know, she's been going through a lot of... Um, the full immersion to a Māori course and stuff like that. And I got there and I was like, oh gosh, I was like wringing my hands and like, what if I feel left out? What if I don't feel enough? And I actually came into this like beautiful, welcoming space. Um, and her and I were able to connect on a level that we hadn't um, when she lived here, you know, five years ago. Um, and so it was really beautiful and really um, like exciting for me that I was able to make all of these um, you know, connections to my culture, even without being in New Zealand. Um, and I definitely think that being, you know, creating the podcast with Kate um, has allowed me to like express my feelings and express my culture as well um, in ways that I hadn't really before. Um, like Kate said, it's about building community, and, and that happens in, in us as well. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. How um, you know, creating a podcast like this and hearing so many different stories that have similar sort of threads but are so different from one another as well um, can help, I think, you know, help the connection and help a sort of deeper understanding of being biracial. Even for those of us that aren't biracial, it's it's so interesting to understand how um, connection to culture works for people who feel sort of torn between two different cultures. Um, and speaking of, your new project is called Threads. Um, Maria, tell us about how it came about and what the exhibition looks like. Awesome. So we, um, Kate and I applied to Museum Victoria's Culture Makers Program. Uh, this is the second time they had run it. Um, we're in the second intake of it. Um, and it's just a program that inspires um, like connection uh, between culturally diverse communities and Museums Victoria. And when we applied for it, we pitched some workshops, which we are running workshops with kids, um, but our wonderful um, connection at Museums Victoria Gameet um, really helped us like elevate what we were going to do with that. And we ended up creating this incredible, um, immersive, digital kind of experience um, with them called Threads. And so it's at the Learn Lab in Melbourne Museum at the moment, um, it's going to be in other places as well. Um, but it, it's this, the Learning Lab is this giant room that has eight projectors in it at Melbourne Museum. So it's a really immersive room, three walls of projections and the floor is projection. And we sat down together and wrote a script, which is something that's so, so different from what we normally do together. You know, we normally create this podcast where we just have a little chat. Um, but we ended up sitting down together writing this script and then creating artwork that went along with it to be shown in this gigantic room of projectors. So for us, it was like, oh my gosh, this is quite scary. This is quite outside of the realm of things that we normally do and things that we normally create together. But it was so fun to reach beyond what what we knew was possible with our creative practice um, to create threads. Um, together, and it's really just an, uh, an exploration of us talking about how we connect to culture, how we felt disconnected from culture, and how we connect to culture in little ways. So we explored it through 
um, our respective New Year's practices. So for me, that's Matsubishi, for Kat, that's Noru's. Um, and we created uh, like basically stop-motion artwork um, for the Learning Lab. And it was a bananas experience, right, Kate? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy to not work in an audio medium or to not work in a flat medium. I think that was something that was particularly confronting for both of us at the beginning because it, the sound and also the images, they travel around the room. And so I guess for us, we had to really think about not only our story and the way that we were speaking that story um, and, and also the visuals and how we were presenting ourselves and our culture, but also think about making a really, I guess, hopefully immersive experience for people as well. And so that was definitely a challenge. And, like, we spent, like, days just sitting, cutting pieces of paper and, like, moving little bits of thread because anyone who's done stop motion knows that it's, like, an intense, like, labour-intensive process. Um, so that was that was like fascinating and really difficult all at one time um, but I'm really kind of happy with the, what we ended up coming up with because I think it, it's representative of us but it's also deeply representative of the fact that like reclaiming culture is not a linear journey and it isn't just about the big moments, it isn't just about that, you know, going back to Iran or going back to New Zealand but it's about um the moment when you grow your wheatgrass for Nauru's and it doesn't get mouldy um, and those two things can be just as important and I think like as conversations of race have moved in this country um, and I guess globally as well it seems really important to be able to highlight both and highlight the importance and significance of the little moments just as much as it is about talking about trauma for example. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to see threads at the Melbourne Museum and it's so beautiful and so immersive. And it's really cool how all the elements of sound and visuals and stop motion and, you know, the the concept of the little things, it all really comes through and comes together um, and it's spectacular. So um, really encourage our listeners to go and have a look at the Melbourne Museum. Um Kate, there's also some other events happening as a part of Threads, including a nocturnal event and a kids' workshop. Can you tell us about these? Yeah, I can start by chatting a little bit about nocturnal. So we're going to be doing an artist talk um, at Melbourne Museum. They have a program um, where they do a bunch of workshops and um, events after hours, um, and it's specifically a time um, not for kids and instead for adults. And so we're going to be presenting Threads and talking about it a bit then. And maybe Maria can um, go through some more of the details of that in the workshop. So the nocturnal event, um, you know, Melbourne Museum, Melbourne Museum does a fantastic um, after hours um, events. I actually just went to the midsummer um, event for um, the Melbourne Nocturnal event and it was so gorgeous and played drag bingo, um, made a pin, had a lot of fun. Um, so they have a similar event next month. Um, and that is on the 14th of March, so super excited to be speaking at that. And it starts after hours at 6, um, after the Apple Museum hours. Um, and we are also running um, some Culture Makers Labs um, as part of our work with the Culture Makers Program. And those are on Tuesday the 19th of March and Wednesday the 20th of March. And that is for school kids. So uh, for year 8 to 10, um, kids will be running uh, workshops, creating art with them and chatting about belonging. Um, talking about our artistic practice, showing them threads, 
all of that stuff. So um, if you are at school, um, you know, get come along. Um, because, you know, we're really, really excited to be running those events. March is going to be a busy case, isn't it? It's, it's going to be so busy because we also are actually relaunching the Emotional and so season two is going to be um, launching in March um, and we have actually a very exciting um, event that we can't really talk about today but um, keep an eye on our socials because on the 21st of March we're doing something so exciting that I've literally been preparing my entire life for um, and yeah we're going to announce tomorrow so keep an eye on our socials. <laughs> That sounds so exciting. Um, yes, for listeners who are interested in that, follow uh, Being Biracial on Instagram at Being Biracial. We'll link to it in our show notes as well. Kate and Maria, we're running out of time, unfortunately, but it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you both this morning. Thank you so much for having us. As usual, kind of you. <laughs> yep, happy to be here. Love to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you and hope to have you both on soon again. So that was Kate and Maria from the Being Biracial podcast uh, talking to us about what's on for season two and their new project threads showing at the Melbourne Museum. We encourage our listeners to go check it out in the Learning Lab. So that brings us to the end of our show this morning. Uh, Just a quick rundown on what we had uh, on the show today. We started off uh, listening to a clip of uh, Jan Bartlett speaking with Dr. Helen McHugh about her work with Australian People for Health, Education and Development Abroad, or AFIDA, um, also known as Union Aid Abroad, and her continued advocacy for refugee and women's rights. We then uh, had a conversation with Sarah Barini and Shirley Winton f- from Hobson's Bay for Palestine about community mobilizing to advocate for, for free Palestine and how the residents of Hobson's Bay are calling for an end to genocide, occupation and crimes against humanity committed against the Palestinian people. Um, there is a community rally taking place tonight at 6pm at the Hobson's Bay Civic Centre, so uh, follow at Hobson's Bay for the number four Palestine on Instagram for updates or to join in. We then spoke with uh, two residents of the West, Elena and Angela from Bike West and Better Streets for the West respectively, talking to us about advocating for safer bike lanes and safer footpaths for uh, residents of Melbourne's West. We had a small update about camp sovereignty, followed by Uh, a conversation between Giselle Hanna and Elena Lopez from the Communication Workers of America about cross-border worker solidarity in the face of job uh, offshoring. And just then we ended with a conversation with Kate and Maria, who are the hosts of Being Biracial podcast um, about their new project Threads happening at the Melbourne Museum. You can follow them on Being Biracial for updates. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Stay tuned to Breakfast the rest of the week and we will be back again next Tuesday at 7am. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.